This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. There's a good chance you have or have had a student who has a loved one in prison, but we hardly ever talk about kids dealing with the effects of mass incarceration. We talk with a teacher trying to change that. Plus, yeah, Virginia's blackface mess is ugly, but teachers have had their own instances wearing blackface recently, and education's race problem goes much deeper than that. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them first here in the studio in Kansas City. David Muhammad, what do you teach? Uh, I teach high school international relations and economics. Lynn Shipley, next to him, what do you teach? I teach computers, and I'm now an instructional coach. And in Chicago, Laura Ferdinand, welcome back. What do you teach? Hi, I am the curriculum coordinator at my school. So Laura's in Chicago, Lynn and David here in Kansas City. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet, at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we're talking about on the next episode and also reviews some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. We break our students down into a lot of different subgroups by gender, by race, by ethnicity, by socioeconomic status. Often we do, do this to better observe differences in student achievement and better meet student needs, but there's one fairly significant subgroup of students we hardly ever talk about as a group kids who have an immediate family member who is incarcerated. Think about this. Researchers have found that more than 5 million children, representing about 7% of the U.S. school-age population, has had an incarcerated parent. That's one out of every 14 kids. That means you likely have or have had a kid in your class who has experienced this. For black youth, we should say the rate is um, even higher, about one in nine. Freelance journalist Melinda Anderson did some digging on this topic recently and published a story for Edutopia last month documenting not only the toll that mass incarceration is taking academically and emotionally on American school children, but also efforts across the country to meet the particular learning needs of kids who are dealing with the trauma of having a loved one locked away. And it was through Melinda Anderson's work that we discovered the work of POPS. That's P-O-P-S, which stands for Pain of the Prison System. It's a group for teenagers with incarcerated family members now established in at least a dozen schools across the country and growing. And it started in Southern California with a veteran English teacher named Dennis Danzinger. And Dennis Danzinger joins us now. Thank you so much for speaking with No Wrong Answers. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, Dennis, what was the, the impetus for starting POPS, again, that stands for pain of the prison system. Why did you feel um, it was necessary after having spent, uh, from what I read, uh, 20 years or more in the classroom? Well, let me do a little backstory. It started with both my wife, Amy Friedman, um, who was a journalist in Ontario, Canada, um, went into prisons to write stories about prisoners, ended up marrying a man inside and raising his two daughters. When we married many, many years later, I was teaching at LAUSD. She came to my class to, through a pen program, and we began getting essays in which students were talking about the impact of having a parent or a loved one incarcerated. So that was the tip-off 
One of my most beloved students one day suddenly stopped coming to class, disappeared. I found out he had been in prison for a 22-year stretch. I went to visit him in New Folsom Prison. He wrote me a letter when I came back. He said, read this to your class. And it was a letter to my students that said, the only thing I ever promised my, parent, my mother was that she would see me cross the stage. She's not gonna be able to do that. Please take your schoolwork seriously. Graduate, get your education. Don't get your GED in prison like this. A student in my class who had never done anything, this was November, had a zero average, no one had ever heard her talk, sat up and began talking about her brother who was a new Folsom and literally did a seven minute monologue about what it was like to go back and forth to drive up there with family someday. There were lockdowns, didn't know what to say to them. Um, I came home, I told Amy about the situation and she said, we're going to start a club. And that was how POPs began. Yeah. You meet weekly um, or try to w meet weekly. Uh, how does it work? What happens um, when the kids in the club that, that you run come together? I, I, my club is at Venice High School where, where POPs started. Uh, we serve a really good meal. Kids come on their own. No one is sent there. No one is sent there for punishment. They self-select. Uh, when they come in, we publish an anthology every year of our students writing poetry, art, photography. People write about their experiences. Sometimes we have guest speakers. Uh, sometimes the students just want to write about what happened that week. You know, school lunch is like 32 minutes. It goes by very quickly. But depending on which pops group you go to, you generally have the same feeling, but a different thing might happen. In my group, since I was an English teacher, it's heavily writing. It's heavily geared toward writing and, and publication. Other groups are heavily leaning toward sort of just speaking about what went on during the week. It's a combination of things. Yeah. Uh, a big part, as you already indicated, a, a big part of the weekly meeting is is what you describe as a, a communal meal, a communal meeting, and then group talk. What are some things that come out during these communal meetings? What, what do kids want to talk about? Um, what do I say to my loved one who's in prison when I want to write? I don't know what to write. I go there to visit a family member but I don't want to say anything negative because they've already got a lot of negativity. So they, ne they never really know what I'm going through. Students have talked about going to visit their parent early in the morning before school who's been um, in ICE. Some people just want to read a paragraph or a letter that they've written that they're afraid to send. Um, they're looking for connection and in POPs, there's a group of people who understand what they're going through. And, and then how does um, being in POPs or being in a group of, uh, of larger kids who in a lot of ways can relate to that experience, how does being in that group over time um, in your experience uh, change kids? You know, we, when, we, when we came up with the idea, we started researching and the model we came up with was the first gay straight alliance club that was in Western Massachusetts, I believe in 1988. And we studied that and we, we actually duplicated that as best we could, that students who are walking around with a secret or a load that they can't talk about, they need to be with other people who share the same experience. I can, I can tell you just a very quick story. The very first time, our very first POPs meeting six years ago this month uh, in my classroom at Venice, Amy and I would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and brownies the night before. And I invited my students to come to this club if, if it 
it was interesting to them. And a young lady who was in 10th grade, we'll call her Nancy, came in, took her sandwich, took a brownie, sat down. Another one of my students came in on the wall later, we'll call her Annie, same thing. They looked at each other, they put their food down, they ran into each other's arms and hugged and said, you, you. They had known each other since kindergarten. They had been in each other's classes, they had grown up together. One had a godfather who was very close to her in prison. The other one had a father who was in, I believe, for life. They had never spoken about it. I want to turn the microphone over to our teachers, Laura in Chicago, David and Lynn here in Kansas City. I didn't know if you had any questions, but can I just start by asking, do you um, have students or have had students um, that you know that have had family members in prison? Or or do you struggle to meet uh, their needs? Or do you have any reflections about what you're hearing Dennis Danzinger talk about? Uh, yes, uh, we have uh, students who have parents that are incarcerated, and they do carry around a secret. Uh, Dan, I'd like to you know, congratulate you on your program. I think that is a, a wonderful program to have and a, and a good model. And my biggest question was, um, what have you learned as an educator in your time with POPs? I mean, what, ha- what has changed with you? What I, what I learned is that everyone has a story or maybe multiple stories that need to be expressed in some way, whether it's through writing, whether it's through art. One of our students does it through dance, song, that people need to know that just because they love somebody who is incarcerated, they are a good person, they're worthwhile, uh, they're worthy of our love and respect, and that the crime that someone else committed is not theirs. Yeah, I was going to ask too, um, do you see the same type of effect uh, with kids who have siblings that are incarcerated? You know, um, I know that the focus mostly is on parents, but like uh, I would imagine that kids who have older brothers or sisters or, you know, such that that are incarcerated, it has the same kind of psychological effect. It, It has the same effect. And we don't focus just on, you're exactly right. It's siblings, it's cousins, it's godparents, it's aunts. It's not just parents. And one of the young women, Bianca, who who is now a graduate and in college, still comes and serves as a mentor and a volunteer. When she first came to Pops with a friend, she had written a letter to her brother that she could not read. A friend of hers read the letter to class while Bianca stood there and cried. Years later, not only did she join the club, but she's still in college and actively a model, a mentor, and a volunteer in our club. And it was because she was so angry at her brother, she hadn't spoke to him in six years. Now she writes him regularly and goes to visit him. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, know, especially when you look at the statistics, of course, of of the African-American Latino community where the rates are a lot higher, you know, for myself, this hits very personal because I've I've had a sibling that was incarcerated. And I would imagine in some neighborhoods where you have educators themselves who have, you know, there may be their own children might be in, in, incarcerated in the effects that has. So I could see something like this really continuing to expand and offer a lot of resources because, it, you know, it's therapeutic and, and the effects that it has on an entire community when someone is lost to the in, incarceration system is, is major. You're, you're exactly right. And things started quietly at Venice High School. Uh, we've never, like, had an announcement over the loudspeaker come. But as people heard about it, after about the first year, the teacher directly across the hall from me came to my class one day 
and sat down and said, my son's in prison and talked about that experience. It's it slow. People who I thought would be teachers very, very opposed to it, after a while began walking students over to introduce them to me before school, after school, and introducing the club. You can't teach in any school in, this Amer in America, public or private, and not have somebody in your class. Uh, everyone's been touched by this. Every teacher has somebody in their class who's been touched by mass incarceration. I was going to add, um, there we have a really high population of families in our school that have a loved one in the criminal justice system. And kind of to top it off, our school is two blocks away from the Cook County Correctional Institute, which is this just looming, massive building. And so not only do we see our students coming to school, you know, especially the students whose family members are in prison, coming to school with those emotional aspects that really kind of take over their whole lives. But we also see that physical representation of it anytime we leave the building. Students in our community are not only aware of the threat of incarceration, but they're also very on edge all the time about it. I'm really inspired by a lot of what I've heard today about just giving kids the opportunity to talk and especially to write about it, I think is such a powerful tool because that is contemplative, it's quiet, you don't necessarily have to share it if you don't feel comfortable or you can share it over time. And I think that that's something I'd really like to try with some of the students that I work with, just especially because those emotions and that trauma run so deep. And for so many of them, it might they might not even be able to discern what emotion they're feeling as a result of their missing family member versus, you know, all of the other aspects that um, that that take over kind of their daily functioning. And the Pops Club has grown. Um, I think what I counted uh, more than a dozen schools, most of them in yes. California, but still um, some as far away as Baltimore, Maryland, uh, now have a Pops the Club in their school. Um, so can you explain that process of, of growing the club, where it might be going in the future? And I, I guess really if, if teachers or educators are interested in, in starting one of their own, what, what happens? Um, well, we have, we're a nonprofit. We're, I think, in 15 schools now, eight in L.A., two. We opened two in New York City, two, one in Baltimore, two in Atlanta, two in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's a simple concept but kind of subtle. There needs to be training. Um, we have a curriculum. But if anyone was interested, they should write to Amy Friedman, who's our executive uh, director at Amy at popstheclub.org. Um, and she would walk you through what the process is. We get we get inquiries almost every week about from all over the country about starting a pops club. And we have uh, a strategic plan of when, where and where we're going to grow. But. Anybody who, who's interested in really what the structure is and how to do it and how to get a Pops Club in their school should really just write to Amy at popstheclub.org and ask for the you know the step-by-step -step process. Yeah. Uh, well, Dennis Danziger, he uh, was a veteran teacher uh, in LAUSD for years, uh, taught English. Now he um, runs with his wife, Amy Friedman, the Pops, the club that stands for Pain of the Prison System. It's a, a group of students now in at least 15 schools, uh, growing more, um, that aim to meet the needs and give an outlet for uh, students with uh, loved ones in 
prison. Dennis Danzinger, thank you so much for spending some time with us on No Wrong Answers. Thank you for uh, caring about the, about the subject, and thank you for having me. appreciate it so much. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, Virginia politics is in chaos. Three of the state's top politicians, all of them older white men, find themselves embroiled in scandals over blackface. Two have admitted to wearing it when they were younger. A third was apparently the editor of his college's yearbook, which contained many images of white men in blackface and racial slurs. But lest we become too self-satisfied, education has its own blackface problem. There have been several recent examples of white teachers donning blackface, including last month a California elementary school teacher dressed up in what she thought was traditional African garb and then put on blackface at school for a lesson on David Livingston, which was a colonial-era British explorer. There was also the teacher at an Atlanta charter school last year suspended after organizing a Black History Month performance in which her students, a number of them both white and black, uh, and during part of the performance, holding up blackface masks as they recited a Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem. These incidents are ugly and disturbing, but they're also in some respects simpler to confront and deal with than education's larger problems with race. And that's where we get to our own David Muhammad, who diagnosed these more systemic issues in a talk he gave to the Kansas National Education Association recently. And he posted his talk to Facebook, and I just thought we would take a brief Listen to some of the things he said, maybe his main point. Here it is. We have a race problem in our schools. Students of color are failing and our system is failing them. It is a toxic environment that needs to be reevaluated. However, the problem is perplexing because what we are experiencing is the phenomenon of racism without racists. We don't say overtly racist things. We don't use the N-word or racial slurs. Uh, we are conscious of not separating kids based on race. Um, so we don't do overtly racist, obvious things. However, we still have racism. We have the product without the actual source. You can listen to his full talk at his Facebook page, David Abdullah Muhammad. And to be clear, David, because you're here today, <laughs> uh, you made this talk before any national conversation about blackface had started, yeah. I, I think. So that was not necessarily the reason that you were giving this talk, and that's not what you were responding to. Uh, but I will say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in your framing of what you call the school's race problem, it almost seems like something blatant, like a teacher wearing blackface or saying the inward was another example that you gave. Um, that may be easier to address than some of the more deeper, more systemic problems um, that you did go on to address later in your talk and it kind of alluded to there in that clip that I played. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that what we see in education oftentimes is what we call microaggressions, right? Like, it's this, it's the effect of years of systematic racism coming out in different forms and then people not understanding why certain groups might feel upset or why certain groups might not be performing in a, in, in a way that might be satisfactory. Um, so it's it's not a one person that you can point at or one incident that is directly in your face. It's it's a lot of little things that have added up or uh, manners in which we all behave 
um, that are the effects of a system that is built on a lot of, of historical racism. Uh, so I want to ask the teachers we have here, we have two teachers of color. Um, we also have a white teacher as well uh, that I guess may be germane to the discussion. But I, I want to know what are your different experiences dealing with race on your campuses with your students? How has race played a factor in your job? Race is a... Uh... <clears throat> something that we talk about often in my job. We are in the midst of um, working with Glenn Singleton's uh, Courageous Conversations about race as a district on a whole. So we are constantly talking about the role that race plays in the education process. The issues come about when people <laughs> say that they don't feel that they're racist in any way, shape, or form. Of course, they teach at our school, so therefore, how could they be racist? And you, and, and you teach a lot of kids of color. I mean, almost all are kids of color in your school. We have 93% kids of color in our school. Out of our 60 teachers, um, eight are African-American. Uh, we don't have any teacher, and we have one Latino. I'll take that. And so um, our kids are primarily taught uh, by women who are white, to uh, students who of color. And so there, there are some differences culturally. There are some differences that need to be addressed culturally. And uh, we have, have to have tough conversations with what it looks like to demean a group of students because you don't understand their culture. Can you give me an example of when you've had to have a conversation like that? Like what's something that's happened that has prompted a conversation like that? Sure. Oftentimes we hear our parent, our teachers say the parents just don't care. Hmm. They just don't care because they can't make it to parent-teacher conferences or because they can't make it to a certain meeting at a certain time. I often say this parent is working. So obviously the parent cares because they have a job and they're supporting their family. Because they cannot do what you need them to do at the drop of a hat does not mean they don't care. It means that you might have to address it differently. I have to constantly remind our teachers that they have to look at a full situation, not just from their point of view, in order to address the needs and concerns of that child. Uh, David, back to you. We've noted multiple times on this podcast um, that you teach at a school that is vast majority white, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of the students and the staff. Um, and I wonder how you address these issues in that school when you are, when you are one of the only people of color on campus. And then also just uh, getting back to the, the kind of newsy event that pegged this segment. But I mean, has this, this whole blackface controversy rippled uh, through your school at all? Or have your students brought it up? How do they see it? Yeah. Well, you know, the black some of this has come up since we've had some snow days, so we haven't right, been right. able to approach yeah. it as much. Yeah. But um, you know, in my school, I, I have it's been an interesting complex because it's very easy to become tokenized as the go-to diversity coordinator when that's not even my job title. Um, but I've I've had to be a part of the voice that's stood up when certain things have happened, cultural insensitivities, and broadcast it and say, no, this is wrong. Because what's happened in a lot of schools, I think first it should be noted that I think in most schools, it's not that teachers have bad intentions. I mean, to go into teaching, you have to have a pretty open-minded complex. You you go in with the idea of you want to help kids. But I think that since most of the settings are, I mean, it's 80% white uh, working field that's nationwide, um, you get into these communities where people don't have to think about 
certain um, microaggressions and cultural insensitivities or they haven't been pushed outside of their comfort zone to think about what they're doing and have been doing for years. And so then when you get uh, in a school system like mine where it's 86 percent white, the few Latino students and a few African-American students, a lot of times they just stomach what's happening and don't feel empowered enough to stand up and speak about what they feel is offensive. And so I've tried to serve along with some others as a catalyst to give them a platform to speak out. And in times that's made me um, sometimes blacklisted, no pun intended with the word, um, you know, or, you know, resented by some community members. But then other times it's it's caused some change, uh, you know, case in point. A couple of weeks ago uh, at, at my school, there was a, a high school basketball game and uh, some of the kids decided to dress up as the, the, the game thing was fiesta and they were wearing sombreros and ponchos. And I had to go into the administration and say, that's not OK. You know, I don't care if it was five or 10 students. That's not, you know, appropriate. Um, and, and sometimes I wonder if if I or others weren't in the building, would they even bring that up or would they just laugh it off? Um, you know, and so in regards to the blackface, what I'm going to try to do in, in my history classes is is have discussions around it. And, I, and I've come to find that when you have these discussions with students, they're willing to engage it a lot quicker than the teachers are. Yeah. You just have to give them the platform um, and, and make sure that it's purposeful um, because there's a history. This is a part of our sadly, our, U, our U.S. history that goes back way before Gucci and Prada and such were uh, guilty of these acts. Uh, Lynn, you mentioned having difficult conversations with staff members, white staff members, um, particularly. Um, what are the, what, 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 what's the content of those conversations? What do you, what have you found to be a, um, <laughs> successful way <laughs> to broach these topics and, and then maybe uh, a way that's not been successful? Well, the, 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 the biggest thing is to establish trust. Um, we've had to have a platform where when we have these discussions, we can get away from the blaming each other mm. and to actually open up the dialogue to say that I've misunderstood this, I've never been exposed to this, I didn't realize this, and then you can have those discussions. So when we discuss equity in our school, we often begin with the premise of what is it that you saw? Mm. Um, how did you perceive the situation? And then we can look at things in uh, different avenues. We can look at them from a historical perspective. Uh, it's funny the things that David says are microaggressions. Uh, in my generation, we just called it covert racism <laughs> as, opposed like to, as opposed to microaggressions. But the, some of those are uh, equipping my students with the skills to let go of every single little thing and look at the big picture and how you navigate the world. Mm. Um, Code switching is a big thing with our kids. Um, letting teachers know that code switching will take place if they want to navigate their classroom is a big conversation. Yeah. And it's interesting. So just a couple of weeks ago, we talked, it was based off of the events around the Covington Catholic boys mess with the, the protest in, in Washington, D.C. And at that time, we were talking more about how um, those boys did not seem well prepared to enter a, a complex and... Um, a dynamic world uh, when they went out in the real world and encountered people who are different from them. Uh, you're saying you you have conversations with your students, students of color, who um, you talk to and, and try to prepare for the world they're going to be in, where oftentimes they're they're going to be looked at and not um, not respected, not taken seriously, um, and you actively try to teach them that. 
Yes. It, that that is a, a skill, a survival <laughs> yeah. skill that we people yeah. of color have have to know. Yeah. We we just have to know it. I cannot go into a situation speaking uh, like I would with my best friend. Uh, I have to change my language. I have to change my tone. I have to change the words I use. Uh, it is just part of learning to navigate various situations. School is a a place where you learn how to navigate. And what do you tell them? What what, what are some of the things that you impart to them? One, um, the cussing issue. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing. Uh, Our kids, kids in general cuss, curse, uh, however you want to say it. And um, I explained to them those words aren't acceptable in this situation. What you do on the playground with your friends, what you do at home, feel free. But here, those things aren't acceptable. Those those conversations can be had, and, and as David said, the students are more open to those conversations than adults are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I just it's making me think when you mentioned, uh, you know, the, those Catholic boys in that situation that you guys discussed a couple of weeks ago, and how they weren't equipped, and it makes me think even tying in the whole blackface phenomenon that's going on now. They don't have to be equipped because they are the norm, right? Like, I, I, like I, I, you know, you always teachers say, well, we got to get these kids ready for the real world. Well, this is their real world. Like, students in my school, they're going to go to their colleges, the same colleges that their parents probably went to, join the same fraternities, come back to the same neighborhoods and work for dad's company. I mean, that's what happens a lot of times. So they stay in this bubble, whereas, you know, marginalized populations are forced to constantly um, code switch and, and you know, navigate that world of when am I being too black? When am I being too Latino, you know, or whatever the case may be. Um, And I think that even with this blackface phenomenon, I was talking to my wife about it the other night. It's this, there's this uh, Paul Mooney quote. I won't quote it directly, but he says, everybody want to be black until it's time to be black. And he uses a different word, right? Like cultural appropriation, dress like us, sing all of our songs, put on blackface, but only until I get in trouble, you call me out for it. And now I don't want to navigate that. Like, I only want to pick and choose what I can have. And that's what bothers me even with teachers who say, well, I'm, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. These kids are not a buffet. You can't pick and choose what portions of them you want to take. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, like, that kid is that per- that way all the time. And when that student, you know, leaves the classroom, he has to deal with with the world that sees him, how he sees him. So even if in that 30 minutes you didn't see that part of him, he that's who he is. Yeah. you know. And so we got to stop ignoring these things and stop picking and choosing when we want to be woke and not and recognize that um, we're, we have long-term effects on society. you know. And I'm glad that some of this is being unveiled, but it's nothing new. I mean, I think most black people, when we heard about the Virginia, <laughs> we were like, okay, like, not surprised. It's Virginia. Like, I'm not, I'm just not surprised. And people were like, well, it was the 1980s. Yeah, not surprised. Lynn. This governor has decided that what he did um, should be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And Are you he, talking about in Virginia? In Ralph Virginia, Northam. I'm okay. talking about, yeah, yeah. in Virginia. And, and the privilege that goes along with saying that I will not step aside, I will learn from this, and I will continue moving forward in whatever way he wants to move forward is not afforded to most people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that he can be reflective publicly mm. um, is something that is really uh, amazing because, in a sense, he's saying, yeah, I did something wrong, but so what? I can correct it on this end. Mm-hmm. That is not 
afforded to generally people of color. Can I, so can I ask you then, what would you, what would you want white people and your white colleagues, if there is any lesson to take from this whole blackface mess in Virginia, is there a lesson that you would want white people and your white colleagues to take from it? One, I want people to quit saying they didn't realize this was offensive. That's, uh, I believe, truly, honestly, that is not true. Uh, to hear people say that they didn't realize this was still an issue or they didn't realize this was wrong, this is something that's been wrong for the last 60 years. We're very clear on that. People cherry-pick what it is that they're willing to, um, to, to be responsible for. It's more like I'll ask for forgiveness as opposed to permission. And this whole blackface thing, this whole idea that you can appropriate somebody else's race and culture as a joke or as any other reason uh, should be met with some kind of um, some some kind of and I'm gonna say punishment on on some end. You lose something. You should lose something. And I believe the governor should lose his seat. Uh, David, you said you're going to be thinking about addressing this with your students. You haven't really had them a lot since it really mm. um, became very intense because you've had some snow days. Uh, but you're thinking about what are you anticipating the conversation, where it might go, or or, or what are you game planning for? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with these conversations, you have to be very cautious about not making— and this kind of goes back to the speech, like not making people feel like you're telling them that they're racist because then they sh- they, they tune out. Um, right away that are you trying to accuse me of something I think more along the context of what is the social impact of this I thought I think about what Lynn was just saying about a, a form of punishment you know we have these double standards that are very apparent and we've accepted it you know and it's the same thing that's happening are your students becoming more aware of that double standard do you think absolutely I think that I, you know my at least in my classroom I've seen a growth where they're becoming enraged. And it started, you saw it with the government shutdown. I think that when things hit economics that, you know, uh, when, when you affect people's economics, it allows empathy to come through. You know, if you talk, you talk about civil rights, you talk about history and all these things that's happened, and they say, oh, that's really bad. But when you start seeing students in your classroom who were comfortable and now their father had a government job and he was laid off for a few weeks, they start to question, well, what's going on here? What's wrong with society where people are being affected by things that they didn't do, right? And so that's opened up this door um, to have these conversations. And it's sad that that had to happen for them to be more vulnerable um, or willing to be vulnerable. But I'm seeing this change where, oh, okay, there are some privileges that I've had that now I'm being challenged by. That's in a school, mostly white kids. I wonder, Lynn and Laura, in schools where the, the kids are mostly of color, is the conversation about the, the bigger, maybe the bigger cultural conversation that we've been having? Is it different at your schools? How do, what are they saying, your students? To be honest, we don't have those conversations much in our school. We, um, uh, I think, Teachers are concerned about broaching the subject. I think that they're concerned about losing control of the classroom mm-hmm. when the students do not agree with whatever statements are made. And because and there's the because there's the racial difference, because, uh, a white teacher and, and students of color. Racial dis- difference and, and age difference. Yeah. I, I'm in a middle school, so my kids <laughs> are still dealing with social emotional learning yeah. skills. And <laughs> so what comes up comes out. <laughs> Some yeah. teachers will, uh, sometimes are not capable or ready for to handle those situations. Laura, what about you? Uh, The students that I work with are, they have uh, very 
choice words about the government shutdown mostly because of the fact that it involved a border wall uh, between, you know, the country they live in and the country where many of their families are from. And um, and so when that comes up, it comes up often, and I think that their anger is very um, honest and real and uh the teachers that we're working with are really trying to help them voice that in a way that gets their fear kind of off their chest um, because a lot of the students that I that I work with do have a, a tremendous amount of fear around this administration. Um, so helping them to acknowledge their fear and, and let some of it go uh, if possible, but then also be productive in their beliefs and be productive in how can they actually voice their opinion in a way that changes people's minds. So I was having a conversation with a group of fourth graders last week about the border wall and and how they just they can't even understand how this is a conversation that anybody would want to have. Um, and so trying to help them understand what their voice can do, how they can add to that conversation. And because it's so personal to them, how can they share their story in a way that will potentially change minds? Um, and that can be done in a lot of different ways. And you don't have to be an adult in order to do that. So that's, I think, the angle that a lot of the teachers that I work with are dealing with. Um, luckily, we work in a in a school district that is very um, supportive of teachers having these difficult conversations and not just shying away from them um, because it does impact so many of our students and not just, you know, the immigration issues, but all of the social issues that we're facing today. And David, you had a comment, and I think we'll make it the last comment. We started with you, and we're going to end with you. Well, you know, I just think that you know, I'm listening to this conversation and, and the results of this systematic failure that we've had in education, are, it shows, right? Like you have these populations, you know, like Lynn School, where it's predominantly African-American students who don't even get an opportunity to voice their opinion on something that's happening that could affect them. And, and mind you, I think we have to start looking at this as a societal issue, right? Like, yes, it's a race issue, what's happening with the Virginia governor and with Gucci and Prada. But when one segment of the population is hurt, or underserved, that affects the entire population, right? And so we have these spaces where it shouldn't just be my, you know, uh, well-off white kids who are benefiting from the fact that I'm able to have this conversation with them because that's a small population, right? Like, I think we as teachers have to find ways to go and have these tough conversations. And a lot of times it's not the teacher's fault that they don't feel comfortable, they're equipped, you know, there has to be higher powers that, you know, empower them to do that and train them to do that. But the kids are being underserved when there's this energy that's happening outside of the walls. And then when they get in this building, it's insulated and then we don't discuss these things. Because now, as they get older, they're not being armed with those muscles to be able to deal with this stuff as it comes up. And we have to hear a variety of voices on it. You know, and, and have spaces where that, that are safe for them to discuss these issues. And I think that's going to lead to more societal change, positive societal change. Well, if you are a teacher who wants to start thinking about what to do, might I suggest going to David Muhammad's Facebook page and listening to his talk that he gave to the KNEA just very recently. <laughs> can I just can I jump in really fast, too? Um, if you are a teacher who's um, like me, a white teacher trying to um, 
you know, kind of wrestle with all of this and and the uh, the voice that you as a white person have, I would recommend reading the book um, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. It's a really wonderfully written and easily accessible book, um, but it really helps kind of, at least for me, it helped me kind of cue into what my brain was telling me and what I needed to do better as I um, as I began working in the hood, um, if you want to call it that. Um, it's a really, really wonderful reflective tool that I've been really glad to have. Well, thank you, Laura. Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. New Colorado Governor Jared Polis recently outlined his plans for statewide all-day kindergarten. A Democrat, Polis estimates the plan would cost nearly $230 million in its first year, which he proposes paying for through a budget surplus. Some lawmakers, though, question whether that money could be spent on other priorities like raising teacher pay. Of course, this all happens even as Denver teachers are on the brink of walking out, demanding, among other things, less money for incentive pay and more money for their regular wages. A state task force in Illinois, that's where Laura teaches, recommends arts education be factored into public schools' annual state ratings. The panel suggests things like art class enrollment, student survey results, and instructor quality account for up to 5% of schools' annual report cards. If adopted, Illinois would become only the second state behind Connecticut to use art as part of a state accountability system. And new data show that many people's suppositions that young voters were fired up for last year's midterms were correct. In three states, at least, youth voting rates in November increased by double-digit percentages over the previous midterm elections, confirming many exit poll estimates that showed higher enthusiasm among voters age 18 to 29. In Florida and Oklahoma, youth voting went up at least 13 percent in both of those states. In Nevada, it jumped 24 percent. Those are some of the headlines related to education that caught our eye this week. Coming up, it's Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Laura, I'll start with you in Chicago. What are the kids into? Um, The kids are into a lot of things, uh, but the fourth graders are busy learning the 50 states, and their their teacher um, shared with them the 50 Nifty United States song, and I think it's been stuck in my head for the last... I don't know, two weeks straight. And every time I see one of them in the hall, they're singing it. And I know this day will pass, but right now, you know, I could just start singing it right now. It's just one of those. Remind me, what, what what's the tune to the 50 Nifty? <laughs> I don't know if I want to subject everybody to that. <laughs> 50 Nifty, United States. United from States from 13 original colonies. colonies. <laughs> I'm sorry, Laura. It will pass. No, that's quite all right. <laughs> Uh, David, you're now into the 50 Nifty. <laughs> what are your kids into? Yeah, uh, our kids are into sleeping in late because they've been off oh, for the last yeah. 
two days. So they're hoping that there's another snow day tomorrow, and I'm hoping that they come back because I'm tired of this. Well, it's been a tough – it's been a long stretch for the Kansas City area the last oh, six yeah. weeks. There's yeah. been a lot there of snow and ice days. Yep. There hasn't been one full week yet. Since you got to the new year, you haven't had a full week, have you? Nope. Wow. And so are you, are you seeing the effects Man, these kids? kids are not ready. Like, they they come back and they act like it's the first day of school every single time. <laughs> so lazy. Oh, no. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, well, we hope <laughs> that there's no more snow or ice in the forecast. Yeah, man. But we don't know if that's going to be the case. Uh, Lynn, what are your kids into? Well, in light of all of our social media adventures at my school, Uh-oh. Uh, we have uh, started working with our kids on... Um, uh, the Center for Conflict Resolution. They're coming into all of our classes, training all of our students, and we're trying to get them to be a little bit more empathetic and cognizant of what they uh, do and say <laughs> so on it, social media. It, it sounds like there are some there are some things some events that precipitated this. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> are you are you at liberty to divulge even kind of uh, obliquely what happened? It's just social media. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think you'd be the only school dealing with that. Um, what's what in particular is about about this curriculum? Do you think is? Uh, well, one it, it, it discusses the uh, circle justice. So I know Laura had mentioned a lot about trauma informed care and other things. We uh, are getting the kids to just be more open about their feelings. They're going through every single social studies class. Every student in the school is being trained on how to uh, work with their feelings as opposed to reacting. So. You know, we have we now have kids that come up and say, I, I need to process. Oh, <laughs> it's like, really? I need <laughs> but, to process. But it's, uh, it's giving them a different avenue to uh, deal with their personal issues as opposed to any other uh, more active uh, things. Well, I feel like there would be some politicians who would need that training. Or <laughs> celebrities. Or athletes. <laughs> uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Laura Ferdinand, David Muhammad, and Lynn Shipley. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, you can go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.